morning. If you were not in the Christmas spirit before you came in, well, we, you better be now. We got Annie uh, Lottie Moon uh, videos, which were amazing to see testimonies. We got greenery everywhere. So we are getting ready to be celebrating Christmas here for the next month as we go through scripture and worship. So glad you're here today. We've been trying to teach at the house a four-year-old John David. I've been trying to teach him, trying, uh, about sin and forgiveness. And since they are abstract concepts, we know it's a little difficult uh, for him to wrap his mind around. I know just from my mom being a teacher, educator, that you know children really can't understand abstract concepts to about you know, second or third grade or something like that. So I know he doesn't understand it. We've been trying to talk to him about it. And, you know, he sins regularly. <laughs> it's just kind of what he does, sometimes worse than others, especially if he's not feeling well. And so he did something the other day, and I uh, tried to talk to him about it and let him know that I wasn't really mad at him, but I had to discipline him and uh, that I forgave him. So I forgive you. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say to that, right? No, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I forgive you. No, you don't forgive me. So I don't know what that means. I'm not sure what that's about. So he still hasn't quite grasped the concept. Yesterday, our dog, Sandy, uh, jumped on him or something the other day and um, uh, maybe slightly scratched him. I'm not sure what exactly happened. And uh, he came to me and said, Dad, Sandy sinned, <laughs> our dog. <laughs> and I said, well, yes and no, because he's a dog. And I said, and the best way I could explain to him, I don't remember what I said, that you know, dogs and animals are not morally, are not held morally responsible for breaking God's law. But I don't know how I said it to him. I just said, well, Sandy's a dog. It doesn't matter. She doesn't sin. She just acts, you know. He said, Sandy sinned. I said, well, you can forgive her. He said, I don't forgive her. <laughs> so, just because something is true, like the truth of forgiveness and sin, doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to explain. It doesn't necessarily mean that people will accept it, even though it's true. And that's what we're looking at today as we look at the truth of Jesus. We are in Acts chapter 17, and we have a long passage. I'm just going to read starting in verse 22 through 31. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word today, that, Lord, that you speak through me, my words reflect yours, that our hearts receive it today, and that we understand the truths that you're trying to give us today, Father, as we enter into this Christmas season, we understand the truths of your gospel, Lord. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you today three realities of the truth of Jesus. Three realities of the truth of Jesus. Number one, the truth of Jesus is unique. The truth of Jesus is unique. Verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Terry kind of read up, leading up to this, gave some background. Paul was in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. Uh, they had been run out of Thessalonica for preaching the gospel. Athens was a what we would call a pluralistic city. It, it accepted all faiths, which is good for the gospel, so the gospel can grow there. So, so Paul made his way there. And while he was waiting in this culture and, and, and talking to the culture, the Bible says that his spirit was provoked. Now this word uh, has the idea of being angry, agitated. His, his spirit was burdened. He was agitated as he looked across the culture and saw all this foreign gods, all these untruths. He was stirred for this culture. And, and even though Athens wasn't his primary mission, he just found himself displaced there. It seemed like a detour. Paul was not one to sit around and moan about his circumstances. He used it as an opportunity. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Lucky them, right? <laughs> As was his custom, Paul would go into the local synagogue and he'd go through the Old Testament scriptures. He would make a case that Jesus was the Messiah spoken of by the prophets. And depending on the synagogues with the Jews there, uh, sometimes he'd be heard and listened to, uh, and sometimes he'd get run out of town. But he would do it no matter what. No matter what. And, and he never knew what the reaction would be. He never knew just what he was getting into. But his desire to speak the unique truth 
of who Jesus was compelled his actions. But there were others who weren't Jews who had heard about Paul, probably overheard these conversations as he was there, realized that he was a good lawyer, a good arguer, a good philosopher. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, Epicureans basically taught a philosophy of live and let live. Don't worry, be happy. Just enjoy the, the pleasures of life. But the Stoics were very different. They taught about harnessing self-control to, to overcome emotions and, and things like this. And today we would call the Epicureans hippies or new agers. We would call the Stoics your, your self-help, self-growth gurus. And some said, it says in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, Christianity is, is neither hippie, new age. It's not self-growth. It's not the hippie life. It's not the self-help growth life. It is simply the message of how the good news of Jesus Christ changes you for your good and for God's glory. Paul's message was so unique that they asked him to speak in the public forum, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is what they loved to do. They wanted to hear about these experiences. And some people, that's all they did. I guess they didn't need to work. I don't know what it was, but they had a lot of free time. This is what they did. Because the gospel was so unique, the educated, learned men of the area wanted to hear these ideas. It's the definition of a truly pluralistic society, where a place where a person can, can have a conversation about a way of life, and people will consider it. That's one of the things that makes, has made America so great, and that needs to continue to be allowed in our country. So we can converse about these things and consider it. Because the gospel is unique. The gospel says that God, the creator of the universe, sent his son Jesus, who is a person of the Godhead, to the earth he created. And this Jesus lived a sinless life and died on a cross so that those who would believe in him would be made right with God. That all people have broken God's moral law through what the Bible calls sin. And the only way we can exist with God after death, when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, is by the death of Jesus. And when he was resurrected, he proved that he had the power over death, purchasing eternal life, salvation, redemption, and forgiveness of sins for those who would believe. This is the message Paul was preaching, and you cannot find that anywhere else. You can find perversions of it, 
distortions of it, but it is unique, and it is often is not often heard. So I want to give you quickly a few what I'm calling false forms of Christianity that we hear, perversions of the gospel. Number one, the false form of Christianity that Jesus died so you can be wealthy. We hear this from time to time. As you follow Jesus, your decision-making changes. You will view money differently. It's possible that God may bless you financially as you follow him, but he will not bless you just so you can be wealthy. That's not what he does. The love of money is a trap that has ruined many. If God blesses you with money, he is entrusting you not to love it. He is entrusting you to be a good steward of it. And he wants you to help people and use it to build his kingdom. Secondly, another false form of Christianity is that Jesus died so you can be healthy. If you're a Christian, it does not mean now that you have the power to be healed from anything and everything. Jesus can certainly heal you, and he does, and he wants to heal you, but it's for a bigger purpose than just making you healthy. It's for a bigger purpose just so you don't have a backache. It's so you can be a, a living testimony to others to show just how good he is. None of us will escape death unless we are here when he comes back, which is what sickness leads to. He didn't die just so he can be healthy, but if you are healthy and if he does heal you, it's for a greater plan than you can even think of. Third, another false form is that Jesus died so you can be comfortable. Salvation solves your biggest need, that is being made right with God. And you can live a very content, a very peaceful life as a Christian. Indeed, God wants you to. But he did not say to be comfortable. He did not save you to not have any challenges in life. He did not save you so you can just put your life on cruise control and go out to pasture and just disappear. He saved you for your good and his glory, and that doesn't always mean you'll be comfortable. Four, another false form is that Jesus died so you can be entertained. We very much live in an entertainment-driven culture. How else can you explain across the, all across the country yesterday, multiple stadiums filled with 80,000 people cheering 18 to 21-year-olds? How can we explain that? How else can we explain the obsession with phones and television shows and movies? Now, a little entertainment is fine, right? but we live in an entertainment-driven culture, and this seeps into the church, and the worship service is not a place for entertainment. Now, you might be entertained being here, but that's not our goal. That's not what we're trying to do here. It's a place for spiritual growth. It's a place for soul fulfillment. It's a place to, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. It's a place to, to commune with the one true God in spirit. It's a place to hear the gospel week 
after a week, after a week, after a week, so you can be reminded of the goodness of God. Number five, Jesus died so you can be miserable. That's another belief that we see sometimes. There's an element of sacrificial Christianity where some people think that life in Christ should always be a struggle. And they should always suffer, and that's not right either. Jesus died to give you abundant life and eternal life. And if you choose to live a miserable life in Jesus, that is your choice, not his. And finally, number six, another false form is that Jesus died so you can be successful. Some of the men and women that God used more than anyone were not successful in the eyes of the world. They were successful in, that, in their calling and their faith in Christ, but they weren't what the world would consider success. In fact, if you show me a, cre a Christian leader who is deemed successful by the eyes of this world, the eyes of our secular world, if they deem them successful, there's probably some compromise along the way. If they are successful by the world standard, it's probably not by the grace of God. These are some of the perversions of the gospel. They're all wrong. Jesus died so you can be saved and redeemed. And this is a very unique message, so unique that we have to be sure we don't pervert it, that we keep it what it is. Secondly, the truth of Jesus is transcendent. Transcendent. Verse 22, which I read earlier, Paul starts this conversation with finding a, a commonality. He says, hey, you're religious. I can tell by looking at your culture. So am I. Finds a common ground to talk to them on. He says in verse 23 that, that I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. I even found this altar that said to an unknown God. And I'm here to tell you that this unknown God, I know who he is. They, they, they were so pluralistic, they wanted to cover all their bases. He says, I, I know this God. And so he tells in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples, nor is he served by human hands. He says, he says, you have the spot for God to be placed. He says that God transcends this little spot. <laughs> He's larger than this little spot you have for him over here. He's larger than the temple. He gives life to those who make the temple. He transcends your little box of where you have this unknown God. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is so transcendent and that he transcends space and time that he determined where you would live and where you would be born. God determined what time of history you would live. He determined where in the world you would live. He determined the boundaries where the oceans start and stop, where the mountains rise God is not just an idea. He's not just a way of life. He is the truth. And he created all this world for one reason, verse 27. 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And every heart is a knowledge of the transcendent because God has created us. Atheists are just suppressing it. A true atheist who really says there's no God. They're just suppressing this. He says that we all should seek out for God everything we see and feel and experience through creation is God beckoning, seek me, find me, worship me. And he says he is actually not far from each of us. And then he quotes one of their poets. He uses their own culture to prove his point. It would be like in the 60s, quoting the Beatles or something. Now quoting Taylor Swift, who's about to take over the world, apparently. He, he quotes someone, they understand. Hey, your favorite poet is even admitted to this. And then he draws the net, verse 29. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or, or silver or, or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, we did not create God out of our imagination. He's always existed. He transcends our imagination. And then he says in verse 30, the times of ignorance of this truth God overlooked. But now, because Jesus has come, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now is the day to repent, he tells them. Now is the time to come to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. The truth of Jesus transcends every bogus religion and philosophy that exists. And Paul is telling them very clearly, this is what you've been missing. I am proclaiming it to you today. The truth of Jesus is transcendent. And number three, the truth of Jesus is divisive is divisive. This is why we will always struggle as believers in this world. We don't share the gospel to be popular. <laughs> That's not going to work. We don't preach the gospel to be accepted by people. We don't follow Christ so that everyone will like us. Now, we don't try to be divisive. It just naturally is. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That happens today. People will mock the Christian faith that, that someone was resurrected. Some people will just respond this way. It's not your job to force them to believe. You can't anyway. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Some mocked. 
Some listened, and this is the pattern we see throughout Acts. Some will perceive it. Some will laugh about it. Verse 33. So Paul went from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Imagine if Paul was not sidelined to Athens. Poor Dionysius, Damaris, never would have heard the gospel that we know of, at least at that point. Maybe they would never would have heard it. But because Paul was faithful to his calling and didn't worry about the results, didn't worry about what people would react, good old boy Dionysius and Miss Damaris, they were saved, amen? They'll be in heaven one day. We'll get to meet them. See, the truth of Jesus is, is too much for some to handle. And but for the grace of God, we'd all be there. First Corinthians tells us that. So we can't be prideful that we're believers if you're a believer. But for some, it's too much for them to handle. Some will laugh. Some will poke fun. Some will joke. And unfortunately, they'll laugh all the way to hell. But we can't do anything about that. You're not responsible for their eternal destination. Your job is to honor God, make disciples, and pray for the lost, and pray for the ones who have rejected the gospel. But make disciples of people like Dionysius, Damaris. That's what we do as a church. We make disciples. You know, we, we have mission statements and vision statements. Churches come up with these long things, and they're not necessarily bad. I understand why we do them. But you can boil down the st mission statement of the church into two words. Make disciples. We're always being made into a disciple. From the minute you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to the day you die or the day Jesus comes back, you're being made into a disciple. Being made more and more like Christ. So we disciple the ones that God saves. Even if they don't quite understand everything. Even if they don't quite understand sin and forgiveness. Even if they tell you, you don't forgive me. <laughs> We teach them the truth. For the truth of Jesus is divisive. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you so much for being able to worship here in this sanctuary today in spirit and truth. If there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you, that today they would hear this truth and do so, that today this would be their day of salvation. For the rest of us, Lord, as we enter into this busy Christmas uh, season, that we don't lose focus of our calling in life to make disciples. And it starts with us. It starts with us being humble to continue to grow in who you are. 
And it's not comfortable sometimes. Sometimes it's difficult. But you give us the grace to persevere as we follow your spirit. Lord, I thank you again for, for being able to be here with these people this morning. The, the church of God, the community of believers. That, that the one thing we all have in common, that those who are saved here today, Lord, the one thing we all have in common is that Jesus Christ, your spirit, indwells our hearts. Lord, bind us together today as we leave. We love you, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.